Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Les Enlumineurs. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. Hello, I'm Sandra Hindman, and Today, for this episode of our podcast, so happy to have Kate Rudy with us. Yes, it's great to be here, Sandra. It's, I've known you for so many years, and it's terrific to see you and talk to you and talk about dirty books, among other topics, um, among my know. favorite things on earth. So Kate is a professor of art history at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. She'll tell you a little more about her background later on. I'm a great fan of her work. And we have called this podcast Touching the Book, which is, shall I say, a field that she has really sort of pioneered. So maybe we could start by your telling our listeners what I mean when I say touching the book. I have to I have to admit, you are the first person who is going to know this story. But I got started touching the book way back in the 1970s. I grew up in Massachusetts for the most part. And I went to uh, the Museum of Natural History in Boston. And the thing that fascinated me the most was watching the chickens crack out of their shells. And I stood there for hours just just rooting for my favorite chick to get out of its shell. And it was fascinating. There were, there were these warm lights and there were these fluffy birds. And, and you could see this, these little noses come out of these shells and you could root for your own bird. And I felt I was so into it at the age of about six years old. And I stood there and I watched them for what must have been a really long time because finally the guard had to come over to me and say, little girl, you need to move along because we're about to close. And he sort of soothed my feelings a bit by saying, well, you are one of many who have watched the chicks come out of their eggs. And you can tell because all of the floor tiles around the chicken exhibition have been replaced. And that's because they wear out because... People like you stand here and watch them for hours. And that was my introduction to indirect measurement. (laughs) That indirect measurement that that we can see the results of actions through wear and tear is really the idea behind this entire um, set of of questions that I've been asking of medieval manuscripts since in my 40s and 50s. And so when I was Working at the Royal Library, was the the curator of manuscripts at the Royal Library in the Netherlands. Yes, tell us a little a little bit here about your trajectory. It goes from chickens to manuscripts in forty years. Yes. So briefly, (laughs) um, we can skip forward pretty much from the chickens. Sure. So So I studied um, at Cornell as an undergraduate, and I actually was a I was enrolled in mechanical engineering because I love math more than anything. But 
In fact, at Cornell, I also got introduced to art history when a friend of mine dragged me to a lecture, which was about Marilyn Monroe and Jello, and about how Marilyn Monroe's breasts were like the Jello of the 1950s. And I didn't even know that that was a topic of inquiry that you could study at university. And I thought, oh my goodness, I, I want to take more art history classes. And so I did that and, and then ended up with a degree in art history and one in English and then. I think everybody at Cornell ended up with a degree in comparative literature only because nearly every course at the university was cross-listed with comparative literature. So you just sort of automatically right. ended up with a comparable degree. And then I think you went to Columbia, isn't that right? I did. I went to Columbia, but first I um, I spent I spent some time working as a waitress and living in Ohio City in a kind of burned out building in Cleveland and waitressing during at night and going to the Cleveland Museum of Art, which had this fantastic library. So I just there go there and read and devour books all day and then waitress at night. And actually a lot of, of what I found useful about research, I learned not in graduate school, but actually as a waitress. Because the idea when you're a waitress is that you never go anywhere with your hands empty. And so I took that idea forward in my research. And when I go to, say, Stockholm or Copenhagen or Berlin, I don't just do research for one book or article. I try to think about what I'm going to do for the next 10 years and do research for the whole shebang at one time. It's like filling up all of the coffee cups, uh, at not just right. at one table, but at the whole restaurant. So I think everybody should be a waitress for a period of time, basically, because it'll really make you more efficient as a researcher. <laughs> and then? I went to Cornell, yeah. uh, then Columbia. And then actually between that, I, I worked in uh, at the Guggenheim in Venice, where I was a, a student, one of the, the interns, and had a stint as the, the assistant to the director. And I think living in Venice also helped me be become a lot more... Well, I helped hone certain kinds of creativity skills, really, because I did things like I remember hitchhiking out to the garbage island near Murano. And, you know, Murano is where they blow all the glass and all of the, the wonky paperweights and broken glasses and things that didn't quite make it through the process and have to be discarded get thrown out onto the slag heap along with all the other garbage of Venice, onto this garbage island. And I went there once, scaled the fence, dropped down, and came home with this bundle of really interesting glass, uh, which I still have with me. I, I, I dragged it all back to New York. But then having to hitchhike to talk a boat with semaphores to get it to come over to the garbage island to pick you up because there's no regular service, you know, to get, to get back to the mainland from the garbage island. Anyway, but yeah, so I went to um, Columbia, and I was very fortunate it to have just fantastic classmates and really good instruction and also met uh, James Marrow then who turned me on to medieval manuscripts at that mm -hmm. point and in particular he he handed me he thrust a uh, a microfilm into my hands and said here is a great topic of an unstudied super interesting thing and that became the subject of my first published essay it was a it was a book of hours that had extra texts to be read at all of the sites in Jerusalem and hmm. so that was the kernel of my dissertation so i'm eternally grateful uh to to jim for for giving me that 
I think many of us have a lot of gratitude for Jim. Yes. I think he's like crossed a lot of our lives. He, I, you know, people are probably on the edge of their seat, like wanting to know what Touching the Book is. So tell people, is your first article on Touching the Book, the Dirty Books yeah. article? Right. So um, I, I came up with the Touching the Book project back when I was curator at the Royal Library. And one of the benefits of being a curator rather than being a regular academic is that you have access to all the all the manuscripts in the collection. And so I would spend hours just going through one manuscript after the next. And we tend to focus as art historians on things that have already been published a little bit, you know, things that have been cataloged. But I started, I, I had this unique access to the ugly things and the things that were ignored and the things that hadn't been written about very much. And one of the things that caught my eye was a Delft manuscript made in the mid 15th century that had these extraordinary fingerprints in the margins. You can see that somebody with really grimy hands had handled this thing over and over and over again. And I thought, wow, that is fascinating because that grime only appears on some of the folios and some of the texts and other texts are really quite clean. And this person obviously ignored those bits. And, right. and so I, I took this manuscript and marched down to the photographer's office and asked the photographer whether he could just photograph under constant lighting conditions every single folio, because my plan was to print them all out and then line them up in my office from cleanest to dirtiest. And when I explained what I wanted to do with these, the photographer said, well, there might be an easier way. He handed me a densitometer, which is, you know, oh, one of my did. favorite That's objects. Happy. Yes. Yeah. And so the photographer had a densitometer because it is, it's a machine for measuring the optical density of a reflecting surface. So basically it tells you how light or how dark something is. And actually I noticed that boots, when you walk into the drugstore in Britain, they have a little densitometer and they can test your skin tone for per perfect color matches. Really? Makeup. Yeah. So it's exactly the same... Uh, concept. And so the idea is that you could take this little gizmo and it is, uh, it's, it's on a logarithmic scale. I could zero it. I could zero the scale to the raw parchment that hadn't been touched. And that was generally the parchment at the top of the page because mm -hmm. nobody handles the book from the top of the page. So on, on every folio, I zeroed the scale at the top of the page and then took a reading from the sort of epicenter of the dirty grime at the bottom, logged those uh, those figures into a spreadsheet, and was able to generate a diagram, a, a chart that shows how much this text, like how much the hours of the Virgin is read versus how much the hours of the cross or the penitential Psalms or the other texts. And the findings were really quite interesting. For example, in a lot of manuscripts, the beginnings of texts would get read a lot and then people's interest would peter out over time and the ends were sort of ignored. And the other real interesting thing that I learned about that was that indulgence texts, texts for which you would get time off purgatory were often the most handled, the most grimy, mm. the most urgent texts in the book. And 
the texts that often got ignored were the Vigil of the Dead. So the texts that one would read on behalf of somebody else who was deceased I, and slightly out of the picture. So that was sort of a sad commentary on, uh, on, on people's self-centeredness. One of the things I loved about this article and I thought was so interesting was not just what texts got read and weren't read, but where on the page the dirt was. And you had some books where the most of the dirt is in the bottom margins, which means that they kind of held, the, unlike the way we flipped through a book at the side edge, they held it and probably stared at it or read it slowly in the bottom upright. Yes. And I think that's a really good point, Sandra. And and that also has to do, I think, with the fact that most of the prayer books I was looking at are octavo size. So they're the eighth of a piece of parchment. And because parchment is springy, it has lots of elasticity. The book wants to spring close back into the, the format that it was you know, stored in, enclosed in its bindings and clasped shut. So in order to read a book, especially a book in a pretty good binding, you have to hold it open continuously and put right. pressure on it with your fingers. And that pressure it translates into a little abrasion and, and some of the dirt and oils and smegma from your fingers sort of ends up getting rubbed into the, right. the right. surface of the book. Yes. So um, yeah, you could see just how people handled the manuscript. And that's also a function of the size, the material, and the springiness of the parchment. And but, like reading habits. Um, yeah, I, right. Indicate, I mean, you if you hold a book that way, you're likely to hold it open longer than if you hold a book and turn the pages one by one with your forefinger. Yes. Isn't that right? I think that's true. I mean, we see a lot of portraits of donors and supplicants who were represented with a prie-dieu, uh, with a book propped up in front of them. And sometimes that book um, lies open flat. But in my experience, there are very few medieval manuscripts that are small, a prayer book size, that do lie open flat. Right. And yeah. this came... I wanted to find a way to measure use of larger manuscripts that do sit on a lectern and do open flat. And so that mm -hmm. was a project I did last year with the grand obituary manuscript from Notre Dame, actually. And I made a video about that because some of that study needed to be portrayed with moving images. And I think that this is one of the one of the shortcomings of the way that humanities research generally gets presented, which is in article or book format, but because we work in medieval manuscripts, which is a time-based medium, uh, where you have a book that has multiple openings and that one reads them and there's a durational element to them, that I think that, that I'd like to see art historians, book historians use video more, more. and more effectively. Yes. I yes. couldn't agree more. I couldn't mm. agree more. And I think it is starting. I think it's one of the few good things of the pandemic yes. is that we were all sent to our laptops and we all now have Zoom accounts and most of us know how to do short videos on our iPhones, I think, even. But I should say that the obituary video is available online and the dirty books is also an open access article so we will make available Kate's many contributions thank you Sandra um, yeah no of course so so what did you word about that about actually 
um, which is that I feel really strongly about open access publishing. I mean, books are so expensive and they're really prohibitive for students. And more and more, I think publishing in open access journals that have no paywall. And for example, the Historians of Netherlandish Art has this fantastic journal and they they uh, were an early adopter of this open, open access ed. model. Mm-hmm. And, and also Open Book Press, Open Book Publishers based in Cambridge have done a fantastic job with a couple of my other books. Uh, which I know, are yeah. Manuscripts. Is the Postcards book with open access? I've forgotten which one. Sorry. No, that, that's an expensive one with Yale. Oh, okay. No, well, <laughs> one of them is. Um, anyway, you're the most productive art historian I know, so there are too many books for me to keep track of. You practically take up a shelf now. Oh. Um, <laughs> Well, I do. I get up and write every morning for several hours. And um, for about five years, I lived in the woods, sort of Walden Thoreau style here in Scotland. And I hired a chef named Ricky who made my meals for me. So all I had to do was was write, read, uh, weave, take some nature walks, do an occasional bit of teaching. But I just reduced all the activities in my life so I could write more. Right. (laughs) Well, to go back to your dirty book, dirty big books, what did you find about dirty big books that was different from dirty little books? (laughs) Oh, my God. I love this. I should have titled it Dirty Big Books. (laughs) That sounds extra filthy, though. Um, Well, so dirty big, big books. What I found is that because the page is so large... Um, and people aren't holding the book open and keeping right. their thumb on it, that there's no mechanical reason for somebody to deposit dirt continuously on the page mm-hmm. that is indexically related to the time spent on that page. And therefore, right. I had to come up with a different way to measure it. The second problem is that when there's a large page, say a folio-sized manuscript, that a person might put it on a lectern and then grab the page in different places each time and and Mm -hmm. not have cumulative dirt on one particular part. And so there had to be a totally different approach to measuring wear on the big book. So what I found was that actually grabbing the page results in a kind of wrinkling of the page. And I'm sure Everybody has had the experience of taking a, just a regular piece of typing paper, balling it up. And when you try to flatten it out again, you can't because those creases are indelible. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that creasing does is that creases, I think, break the fiber in the parchment or the paper. And when that fiber is broken, it has a different relationship with light or transparency. And so what I did is I shone backlighting. I shone light through the folio and that backlight illuminated all of the creases, which is a form of sort of micro damage. And because those creases stop the light from penetrating. And so the, the, the very fresh crisp pages are almost completely translucent, whereas the ones that have been really heavily handled become very opaque. And that is very clearly visible with backlighting. So that's how we handled it. So it's a different approach. So you don't see dirt so much as you see damage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Speaking of damage, I'm not sure. I mean, I guess we knew when you and I were in school, I was probably in school a little before you, but I guess we knew that damage, like rubbing of the devil or someone's private parts in a miniature Christ body, we knew that those were ritual touching 
the result of ritual touching, but no one really talked about it very much because, of course, we're art historians and we want the, the pure, finished, perfect image, not the damaged one. So we've talked already about sort of everyday touching of the book, which is what I would call dirty books article and maybe even your big books video. But what about ritual touching of the book? This also is a subject you have done really more work than anyone else I know on. Oh, thank you, Sandra. I, you know, ritual damage is fascinating. It's, it's true that we have recognized for a long time that there is iconoclasm or the willful destruction of, of images. And that happens for various reasons. And David Friedberg and Michael Camille, among others, have talked about that kind of iconophobia or iconoclasm. But one of the kinds of ritual damage that I'd like to sort of draw attention to is the type that is a result of reading aloud. And mm. there are some really fascinating manuscripts that have clearly been read aloud, including Quancy's uh, Miracles of the Virgin. There's a copy of it in the Royal Library in The Hague. And what you can see is that the prolector, that's the, the person who would read the book aloud to a gathered audience as a form of entertainment, would take this, this manuscript. It was in rhyming French, which is also a clue that it's designed to be read aloud, and would read it aloud and then possibly turn the book toward the audience so they could see the right. pictures and then take a finger and then act and out and act out the important climactic moments on, on the picture itself to say, and here's where the monk throws up over the edge of the boat. And here is where the devil drops the baby out of the castle. And here's the moment where the virgin swoops up and picks up the baby before it hits the ground. And, and so you can see that these actions are reiterated through finger mo motions by the by the prolector and i think that that's an attempt to heighten the drama and to draw people into the image and to make that image come alive with the with the fingers and but so how do you actually calculate that you have finger marked how do you know yes. they turn the book and they put their finger on a particular passage from your densitometer that is a good question so I want to distinguish between two very different kinds of wear. There's the kind of inadvertent wear that happens when you're simply holding the book open, reading it, depositing right. a bit of dirt here and there, or when you might take the book out in a, in a procession and read it in the rain. And so the entire opening gets splashed with rainwater and it gets all over right. damage to that entire opening. Or when a priest is using a ritual manuscript to conduct uh, a baptism and the wet baby gets dripped over the book. And so I have right. some wonderful examples of that, where that kind of damage is simply because the book <coughs> is in the line of fire, as it were, as the book is being used. Now, that inadvertent damage, we can contrast with deliberate touching. And that deliberate touching is when you take your finger and you, you touch somebody's face, you touch the image of the virgin. Um, you want to become closer to her. You want to touch her out of veneration. You kiss your finger first and then touch her face with your wet finger. And we can see the horrors of the fingerprint on the virgin's face in such a way that iconoclasm doesn't make sense in this context, but rather a kind of 
love, a kind of a kind of philia, a kind of wanting to be closer to the depicted subject, or the virgin's gown is often touched in this way. And the blue paint in particular tends to be really granular and doesn't stick to the parchment that well. And so touching it just a little bit sort of makes it makes it yeah. lose its adherence really instantaneously. So lots of little finger holes near the virgin's hem make sense in the context of touching ritualistically and with a with a kind of veneration in mind. So that's the targeted touching. Right. What I find so interesting. So yeah, touching something out of veneration is one idea. Touching a narrative image in order to heighten the drama is another form. And another, about another thing that's not out of veneration, but I listened to a, a podcast from the Bodley and the other day and I mean, the, this is just one example, but there's an apocalypse where the, all the devils are scratched out. So they're not yes. venerating the devils. What are they just saying? Bad, bad. These are bad things. <laughs> yes, I think that's true. And it's, it's probably a, it's possibly a way of showing one's moral relationship mm-hmm. to the image and either doing that probably doing that publicly in order to act out one's moral position with respect mm-hmm. to the devil saying this is a bad devil and, and also a way of disarming the devil so that that or that the baddies mm-hmm. can't right because the important even the picture yeah the picture has power yeah yes, how interesting indeed. yeah Mm-hmm. And another another form of dirt, and I say that in inverted commas, in a manuscript is, well, I have an exhibition that I'm doing together with Emma Smith at the Bodleian. It, it's, um, it's opening has been delayed because of COVID, but it will open in May. And it's about books and the senses. Oh, so yeah. Can, yes. You told me about this. That yeah. sounds so interesting, right? And and so one of the one of the manuscripts we'll show is an Augustine um, commentary on the Psalms, and it's it's a monastic manuscript that was probably read during collation, so read at meal times. And what's mm-hmm. interesting about this particular copy is that there are little balls of wax at the initials at many of the initials, and it appears. I mean, one possible. And likely explanation for these balls of wax is that the reader would read a chunk or two chunks, you know, a section of the text, and then deposit a little bit of a ball of, of wax there as a marker for the next time. So it's sort of like an, a medieval post-it note, as it were, that, that then he's scraped off because a lot of them have, you can see the little fingernail marks where, where most oh, of the balls of wax have been scraped off. It, it's not just inadvertent, like wax falling on the book. Correct. It's deliberate, like deliberate. Waxing. Yes. Huh. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> I like that a lot. And so that's, that's a, that's a way of making a bookmark out of the material you have at hand because you have a candle at hand and you need to make a bookmark. So it's sort of an ingenious way of just using the materials that are presenting themselves to you. Mm-hmm. Christopher DeHamel tells a story I love. Maybe you fi- you'll find a way to include it or something like it in your exhibit. He went to an old, old, old Belgian noble library and he took this missile off the shelf that probably hadn't been used since the early 16th century. And he opened it and he got a whiff of incense <sighs> Because, of course, the missile was sitting 
standing on the altar and the priest was waving incense over it. I now own that missile and it no longer smells of incense. So I feel sad. I know. Isn't it sad? Mm -hmm. I mean, the story stayed, but you, you wish it still had the smell. So in the exhibition in the Bodleian, we'll have some Eritrean manuscripts that are 18th, 19th century, and they they still smell very strongly of food smells and of spices mm. and of the goat substrate that they're made from. And mm. uh, an Eritrean person who came to visit the manuscripts in the Bodleian smelled the manuscripts and, and it transported him to home very quickly. And what we've done is we've laid some pieces of textile into that book and then we'll let the public smell that. And so mm-hmm. we'll have that as an olfactory component to the to the mm-hmm. um, exhibition. But it's it's hard to it's hard to know whether we can capture anything of the medieval smells of books. I know, um, yeah. During medieval taste too. Like, how do we know what their cinnamon tasted like? True. So good point. Would you like some more examples of dirt and many? Oh, you know, I could tell you about my new pollen project. Okay, sure. Okay, so. One of the kinds of dirt in manuscripts is pollen, which is you know just the, the pollen from the plants that are in right. in our environs. And pollen is with us all the time. And manuscript that I studied back in 1995, Book of Hours with Extra Text to be Said in Jerusalem, that manuscript was probably made in Bruges. And I wondered whether it has been transported to Jerusalem to be used in its intended way. And so I'm working together with a pollen specialist named Eileen Tisdall <laughs> at Sterling. And she, during lockdown, has um, created a little pollen hoover. And we're hoovering up the dust in manuscripts. We've been working at, um, on books in, in Glasgow University Library. And we're, we're vacuuming up dust. And then she can... Uh, check the pollen to see where the manuscripts have traveled. How and so, fascinating. Yeah, so that's that's a really um, that's a new way of using dirt as a method of knowing how people use their books. Yeah, no, I mean, traces, traces in books. Um, that's fascinating. Was the turning point for you really then being in the stacks at the Royal Library so that you could... Actual, I mean, by the way, that's why I'm a dealer instead of an academic, or I'm actually <laughs> both. I'm both an academic and a dealer because you're absolutely right that it's a completely different experience. You have to go in the library, you fill out a call slip, you sit there, someone runs over you. I mean, it's not the same as the way, you know, you handle books in the Royal Library or the way I get to handle books every day. And so I take it from your autobiographical presentation that really you're touching the book comes from not just the chickens, but from the experience in the stacks at the Royal Library. That is true. But also in, um, I spent a couple of years living in Antwerp and going to Brussels nearly every day. And I took over 5,000 pages of notes on manuscripts in the, in the Royal Library of, the, of Belgium. And that's a really fantastic place to work, partly because the manuscripts haven't been, they haven't been cleaned very much. They haven't been mm-hmm. found very much. And actually... It doesn't have that 
much use at the National Library as, say, Paris or London does. Exactly. And so there's nothing better than a giant collection of unknown manuscripts that that also run the gamut. I mean, not just the beautiful things, but the, the weird and ugly things. So I, I simply just asked for... I filled out call slips for things, for everything under the sun for a number of years. Mm -hmm. And you never know what you're going to see exactly, just based on very, very loose and incomplete catalog descriptions. And over, over the last 20 years, those catalog descriptions have gotten better. And that sense of serendipity and surprise diminishes. Yeah. (laughs) But I really, that sense of discovery of going into a place where something hasn't really been cataloged is still really, really worth feeling. I get so many drops of, I don't know, adrenaline, pheromones, dopamine, all of that stuff. It's better than coffee. Right. You know, I was thinking when you were talking about the pollen, sometimes I open a book and, you know, I actually don't really have allergies normally, but sometimes I open a book and I just can't stop sneezing. And, you know, maybe it is something about a particular dust or pollen in that manuscript. Um, I mean, these are probably things that many of them haven't really thought about in their books. I hope everyone, you know, goes back and opens their book and looks for signs of use. (laughs) Or even it's also very, it's an interesting Mm self-exercise to think about how you, say, a collector or an academic or whatever, look at a book. Because in my experience, I show a lot of manuscripts to a lot of people who are not necessarily academics. And everyone looks at books differently. Everyone has a different way of touching or handling the book. Indeed. To get back to your question about what the turning point was, I think it was, it wasn't a particular moment when the light bulb went off, but it was a series of over months of thinking, oh, this is kind of interesting. And it's where good ideas keep getting fed with imagination and less interesting ideas wither away into the background until finally you have a pretty good idea. And I like that model. It's sort of a slow build toward building an idea. And mm-hmm. that that project probably took, that was one of the quicker projects. In fact, Nearly everything I've ever written has taken 10 years. I mean, 10 years is sort of the minimum number of years it takes to develop an idea, to go around and look at the the relevant manuscripts, to write it, to edit it, to hand it to friends and colleagues to read, mm-hmm. who will sand away at its stupidities and, um, and help you know, polish it into something that isn't too cringeworthy, which is maybe the goal. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to go back. I mean, I should have mentioned this when you talked about the rhyming French um, miracles of the Virgin, mm-hmm. because I've worked a lot on French rhymed romance, like Chrétien de Troyes and stuff, mm-hmm. and they were read aloud and held and read aloud. I mean, I I never looked for evidence of there being you know, touched, pointed at, used in the way you've talked about. But I have a related question. My manuscripts were all veiled. They all had, um, yeah. and it seemed they all had little silk flaps or yeah. stitching for them. And mm-hmm. it seems hard to imagine like holding a book, turning it around and raising the veil too. I mean, these are big books. I don't know. Do you have a comment on, on that? 
I know you don't work on bales and other people do work on them. Although you would think you'd work on bales since you're a textile person too. I've worked a bit on bales, not so much. Um, Christine Shaka's article is excellent on that topic. I do have some thoughts about that. So for example, the Lancelot manuscript at Yale at the Beinecke, lots of the images in that have been deliberately touched. And so you can see that the margins around the book are a little bit worn that show or reveal that the manuscript has been handled and used and read. But many of the images have really been touched in a very deliberate way. And I think that that is part of the reading process to show when a melee takes place. So when when Lancelot is is having a, a, a sword fight, that those things get played out, acted out with the finger on, on the page itself, which does assume that there's an audience because you wouldn't necessarily do that with yourself alone. But that right. implies that it's part of of what the audience of a ritual is experiencing, of a ritual, perform. yes, a ritual performance in order to heighten the drama using the finger and drawing attention to the to the imagery, which suggests that people have, that the audience is gathered around. But you and I and everybody else who's ever shown a manuscript to a group of people knows that depending on the size of the manuscript, you can get about 12 noses into a book and maybe a larger manuscript, you can even get maybe 15 noses into a manuscript. And I think that that might approximate one model for how things could be read aloud. So some people are viewing it a bit upside down and some people are crying their necks a bit and, and people jockeying for position in order to see but everybody wants to get in on on the view and on the action. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the, to get back to your veil question, yeah, I think that's really fascinating. There's a manuscript in the Bodleian. It's a Psalter English mid-15th century. And what's clear is that the reader has used a wet finger to touch the images of David, who's in various um, mm-hmm. activities in the historiated initials. And this person has also touched the decorative bosses that are in the marginal decoration. And that has caused the paint to get wet and to reconstitute and then to glob onto the other side of the opening and the book is closed. And then we have all of this this migrated paint from the the versa to the recto side. And, And you can also see that there are uh, silk stitches at the tops of the pages with these illuminations. Right. And it's as if you can imagine that somebody had the book, touched the book with a wet finger, really appreciated and adored this book in a lot of ways, damaged it and said, I don't want any further damage. And at that point, uh, sewed the curtains in in order to prevent further damage oh, and think, further migration of the you, page. Well, that makes think, sense. Yeah. Well, I think uh-huh. that makes sense as a narrative to an uh, explanatory narrative for that to particular. this particular manuscript. Mm-hmm. And I think that we need to think about this as a, on a manuscript by manuscript basis. Right, right. I wonder, are veils often in books of hours? I don't think they are. I think they're more in like Psalters or Bibles or Historia Initial or even full page miniatures in a Psalter prefatory cycle. I'm just trying to think, are veils a feature of books of hours? Wait, that's a good question. So there's a Harley manuscript in the British Library that previously had veils and those veils have 
been removed. So we just have the needle holes that show that veils were there. And what's interesting about that, it's a Southern Netherlandish book of hours made for export to England and used heavily where the English owner added lots of text in that bright green English ink that they often use in, in an English hand and really use this book heavily. And what you can see is that at the bottoms of the miniatures, there are big, dirty marks that signify where the thumb touched the the page in order to lift the veil. And somebody with, I don't know, big (laughs) sausagey fingers was lifting these veils over and over and over again, leaving a puddle of greasy ink and hand flesh behind on the page. And so that it actually protected the miniature, but caused a lot of damage just below the mm-hmm, miniature, mm-hmm. which is funny. So that is um, a book of hours that's that an was example. Um, and what, what's also interesting is that there's no real correlation between the quality of the image and whether or not it's veiled. Some a right. person might have a very modest book with images that with, of a very low craft level but still loves that book and wants to protect it with a veil. And I think that that there's a protective capacity of the veil, but there's also this added gesture. It adds an entire gesture of lifting, this aha moment. A completely different experience of reading. Um, It's like how you hold the book, whether it's in the lower corner near the gutter and whether you have to lift a a silk flap to see the picture and... No, everyone should go. Everyone who's a collector who's listening to this, if there are any collectors who are listening, should all go home and look for their veils or just stitching marks in their manuscripts. Um, You know, you've done probably more than anyone I know to bring the materiality of the book into the foreground. And I suppose talking about your pollen project, I was going to ask you about New Frontiers and I suppose your pollen project is a new frontier. But what what other frontiers do you see? You know, your fascinated students who want to continue research <laughs> along your line, or even others that might fit generally under the rubric of touching the book. Yes. Well, one of the one of the ideas I'd like to follow up on. I wrote an article a couple of years ago about the prayer book of Philip the Good. And he had inherited that book from his great grandfather. He didn't inherit it directly, but at any rate, he he ended up with his grandfather's manuscript and he added all of this stuff to it. He added lots of folios. He added lots of texts. He added badges from uh, pilgrims badges from the, the shrines around his territories And then he sewed those badges in so that they corresponded to St. Hubert or to St. Adrian or to the person whose badge it was. And what's also interesting about that is that we see that Philip the Good was a great collector of images of the face of Christ, of the Veronica. Mm -hmm. And there are no fewer than five of them added to that book. And he put several of them, four of them, onto one folio or that he stitched Mm -hmm. them in. And you can see that he must have put his entire face into the book. And these images are sort of low quality in that they're made on really thick parchment that stand above the surface quite a bit. So Mm -hmm. his face, when they rubbed up against them, 
that creates a little gutter and we can see the clean area just below the gutter and the, where this this parchment on the upper surface has has caught his greasy lunch and we can see practically figure out theater. what he ate for lunch that day <laughs> i think he was not a um a man with a clean face and so he was just rubbing his body i think into this book over and over again making contact with the face of christ with his own face matching sort of kissing these images mm-hmm. Over and, over and then two of the images have been treated in a different way. And namely, they have been scraped down with a sharp instrument. And I'm imagining something like a scalpel where the paint has been deliberately scraped off the page. And I mean, it's not, I think, out of iconoclasm. It's not out of hatred of the image. It's not out of trying to get rid of the eyes. In fact, the eyes of Christ are the elements that are left intact. And it's the bridge of the nose and the cheeks and the forehead that are scraped. So the other parts of the face that Christ can still be, you know, watching uh, the viewer do this. And those areas have been scraped down. And I proposed that they were scraped in order to take the paint that had comprised the face of Christ in order to perhaps ingest it. And that also makes sense when we think about the history of ingesting other kinds of objects that are both relics and images, like the mm-hmm, mm-hmm. half-baked tokens of St. Simon, the, the, the stylite sitter, which are both tokens and images of the saint. And so that there's something of Christ who is in these paint flakes that wow. then can get... Yeah. Um, Injustice. So I'd like to use RTI, which is a, a kind of photography technique using raking light from multiple angles to see if we can detect the knife scraping and to see mm-hmm. if this hypothesis is true or if we mm-hmm. can or at least prove that it's not false anyway. <laughs> so I'd like to um, look at manuscripts of the RTI with the uh, lenses of thinking about how how images get used and licked and touched and scraped. And I'd also like to think about um, manuscripts that have images of St. Uh, Margaret. There's one in the Bodleian that's really, really damaged as if the whole thing had gotten wet. And that makes sense if we think about the manuscript being maybe pressed on the belly of a sweating woman in labor. Right. And that's related to the small square image that you sold a number of years ago to Princeton uh, with the with the armor Christi on yeah, it. Yeah, and people who don't know, Margaret is the patron saint of childbirth. So mm-hmm. that's why the image might have been used that way. Now, that's fascinating. More materiality. Yeah. So this is these are examples of the book not just being touched with a finger, but the book being pressed to, to different body and, parts. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, Kate, this has been fascinating. I have to admit, I have a selfish reason for doing a podcast. (laughs) Find your work so interesting. And it was a welcome to talk about it. Thanks. And, you know, I mean, we will will also post um, links to your videos and your publication for people to go to. And I want to thank you very, very much. for Thank you, Sandra. It's really great to talk about this. I mean, I moved to Europe in March of 1999 to be close to the material. And it's been, you know, a a whirlwind of manuscripts for the last couple of decades. And Yes, that's great. 
And it is true. We have more access here in Europe. So thanks again. Um, I'm sure there's much more to come. You're incredibly active and inventive and creative and productive and fun to talk to, too. Thank you, Dr. Rudy, for that wonderful and engaging interview. We would love to hear your thoughts about Catherine Rudy's work. Do you have a question about how manuscripts were touched and used? Or do you have an idea about how her work might apply to some of our manuscripts? Let us know. You can find us on social media at Les Nunier, and you can also visit our website. In other news, Tefoff is live this week online from today to Monday, September 13th. For this online edition of Tefoff, we are pleased to highlight a single illuminated manuscript, the Raman de la Rose, made in Tournai in the late 14th century. This is a splendid, grand copy of a seminal text, and perhaps also the greatest love story in French literature. Be sure to check out the booth in the exhibition. I've placed a link to the visitor registration page in the show notes below. Have a wonderful week, and thank you again for listening. Mm-hmm.